You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us this morning. Welcome. How are you? Good, good. My name is Justin. If we haven't met before, I'm really glad you're here on this second Sunday of Advent. And if you're like me, you didn't grow up in a tradition where we celebrated Advent. We just went from Christmas to the rest of the year to Christmas, and that's all I really knew. Um, and so I, I'm, I was new as an adult to this Christian church calendar and how all of this is working. And if that's you, if you're new to this, like, great. That's, you are in good company. And this, this, what this is all about is this season of anticipation for the coming of Jesus, of moving our time around the life and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. This word Advent, it literally means the coming or, or the arrival. So instead of starting with the joy and jubilation and Costcoification of Christmas, if you will, we start in Advent in the dark, kind of feeling this anticipation of the hope that we, we want and we desire. We know it's coming, but it's not fully here. And it's one of the reasons I really love this season, because it's, it's so much of our lives are really found in that in-between space, right, of anticipation of hope, holding on to something, but yet it not really fully being here yet. And so here in that in-between space, in those moments together, this is where we actually learn to trust. And to what it feels like to hold on to kind of darkness overtake where we're at and a light breaking into the horizon. That's really what Isaiah 40, which we just heard, is about this little bitty flicker of hope in the distance as God breaks in. And in the chapters, if you don't know Isaiah, Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because there's so much that anticipates the coming of a Savior. And the chapters leading up to this are pretty dark, very full of words of judgment, of cries of lament. Israel had been under the yoke of oppression for generations at this point. They knew what it meant to suffer because of their own choices, and they also knew what it meant to suffer because of what oppressors had done to them. And because of this, they were weary and longing for the end of injustice in their story. They were worn down. They were at the end of their rope. But finally, Isaiah 40 is this turning point in the narrative where hope begins to break through like a little bit delight on the horizon. And this is the hope of Isaiah 40. The message, really, that we're proclaiming together this morning is that God is, is coming. There's a promise. It's, it's a promise that isn't just simply that your circumstances are about to change. It's not a promise that life is just going to magically get better. That's nice, but something bigger is actually happening. The announcement we're receiving, both then and, and now, today, I pray for, for us here, is that you hear this word, that God is coming. This is the central message of Advent, and it's the heart 
of, of really the gospel itself. It's, it's not this transactionary pathway of self-improvement. This is not a Christian spin on spiritual enlightenment. It's, it's, it's the announcing of God coming in the flesh, God coming in the here and now. This isn't just a promise of provision for our circumstances. What we see here, this is a promise of presence. Over and over again, what you look at, what you see in the Advent season is this promise of God's power, yes, coming. Of God's provision, yes, breaking through. But in this, his power and his provision are part of his presence. Out of the presence of God comes the provision of the Father. Probably the most preeminent, you know, prophecy we look at year in and year out comes from Isaiah 7. You've probably heard these words before. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. This is something that I, I pray you see and know in this moment, in this season, that the gospel is not just a story about how we fix our lives and make everything better and become our truest selves. The gospel is the announcement from Genesis to Revelation, the promise of the presence of a person who is with us and for us. I want to pray in that today as we move forward in our time together. Father, we ask today that we would know not just the good news of your power and your provision, but today in whatever story we bring into a room like this, in whatever condition our souls may be as we walk into a room like this, if we too are tired and weary, if we too are scattered and scared that we know today the good news is that God is coming and God is here. May you meet us, God. May you meet us as we are, where we are. And may you speak in the name of Jesus. Amen. So at the heart of Isaiah 40, as we press in kind of our attention to this, this verse 3 that we look at says, A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is what we just sang together. When we're studying the scriptures, we encounter these words that you see coming back and forth throughout the narrative, through the books, and, and they're meant to make us grab hold and remember a different part of the story. Remember something that God did in the past. And one such word that we see here in Isaiah 40 that I believe he's wanting us to hold on to is this word wilderness. Wilderness is something over and over in the scriptures that is described as a place of wild untamed testing and refining. The wilderness is where we find ourselves transformed. Exodus, we see this, where God's people are liberated from their bondage. They're free, and that's the beauty of the gospel, this freedom, but immediately they're moved where? Into the wilderness. Why? Because we see in the narrative that's one thing to get us out of Egypt, right? It's another thing to get Egypt out of us, and that is the gift of the wilderness. 
to bring us out of the places where we have been relying on our own self-sufficiency, relying on subpar visions of who God is. In the wilderness, scarcity that we learned in slavery is relearned as dependence and abundance and expectation of trust in God. Dr. Carmen Joy Imes, she writes, she says, the trust is not automatic and God does not expect it to be. He patiently works on Israel's behalf until they can see he is worthy of their confidence. The wilderness is his classroom. I love that. He has work to do in the Israelites that can only be done in a state of dislocation in liminal space. This, friends, is what I hope you hear today. God is not arriving in your life in your self-sufficiency. He's not coming to you where you've got it all together. Where God is coming, where God is arriving in your story is in your need, is in the broken places. We find God's movement over and over and over again in the margins, outside of where we are comfortable, outside of where it feels like we have it all together. These are the places in the wilderness where we feel like we would rather not be at all. And yet that's where God is arriving. And so in response, our job, the scripture tells us, is to prepare the way. So in the ancient world, when a king would arrive, this was a momentous occasion. When you would hear that the king is coming, as we're hearing in Isaiah 40, this is one that required a celebration, but also in that time it required a preparation because what was happening was literally preparing a road, a way for the king and his whole court to arrive. Verses 3 and 4 speak to this. It says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. As you can imagine in the ancient world, good and passable roads were really really hard to find. And so if you have someone of a port importance that's about to arrive, you go before them and make sure the pathway is clear and level. It, able, it enabled you to receive this person, this king, this nobleman, in a way that was worthy of the weight of their glory. So you go before and begin preparing the way. There's a road that, that what we talk about in the time of Isaiah, it's still, you can still see traces of it now. It, it was called the King's Highway. You can see a picture of what it is in the modern day today. It moved from what is now Cairo all the way to Damascus and Jordan. This King's Highway was a place of movement throughout the Old and New Testament where people would come. And as you see, in such an arid wilderness, without the paved road that you see here, there was a constant need to maintain and clear and prepare the way of those who would come in importance to reach you. This could be treacherous. It can be required of them and conditions that changed overnight to go before the one of importance and make sure there was something that was clear for him to pass through. And so in this preparation, what you see is actually 
adoration. When you see the weight of the glory of what is about to arrive, to prepare is a work of worship. To prepare the way is an act of adoring the king that is about to arrive. Our desire for him, our desire for his coming, it's expressed in removing everything that is standing in the way of his arrival. Do you see what Isaiah is telling us? He's calling us to go before the coming of the Lord. And because of this, because the announcement for you and I today is that God is coming, guess what? There is work to do in your wilderness. There is work to do in your need. There is work to do in in the places within you that are arid and scattered and tired. The road that needs clearing isn't out there now. The road that needs clearing is in us, right? And so the real work that we do now is an honest examination of your heart and my heart to see all of the spiritual debris that has accumulated over time. It's looking at the spiritual and emotional baggage that ends up crowding our inner world, that ends up rendering our hearts virtually impassable because of what has accumulated over time. Here's something I've noticed, both in my story and the, in the lives of others. This work of preparing the way that we're talking about today is usually not some big, egregious, evil sin. I've heard that preached before when it talks about prepare the way. It means, in essence, in a very distorted way, you better get your crap together because God's about to show up. Ever heard that message before? That's what I've usually heard this passage mean. You better get all that sin out of your life or he's not coming. And I got news for you. If your sin can stop God from coming, that's a pretty pathetic God. God sees you in in your need, and God is arriving one way or the other. But the way you prepare for his arrival is looking at your own heart and removing the places within us that is standing in the way. Maybe that's sin, but more often than what I've seen in my life and your life as well is that what crowds out the way, what clutters the pathway of God is a frantic and over-busy, over-extended, over-exhausted pace that we share in our lives. One of the most impactful books that I've read over the past couple of years, actually, we did a book study here at Restoration about it. It was a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. How many of you were part of that, that study? Really awesome study by John Mark Comer. It's a book that, that has continue to kind of stay with me as, as I've moved past it as well. It talks about and confronts this busyness and the exhaustion that kind of takes over our best intentions in our spiritual lives. He makes this statement there, and this is what really has taken a hold of my heart. He says, what you give your attention to is the person you become. I want you to think about that for a second. What you give your attention to is the person you become. That should cause us to think right now. What is consuming my attention? And how is this object of my attention shaping who I am as a person, shaping my character for better or for worse? In the late 1960s, there was a psychologist. He was a Nobel laureate. His name is Herbert Simon. 
and he looked at the emerging cultural landscape that was coming in the late 60s as media was beginning to explode, and he called our future, this word that we still use today, he called it the attention economy. Because what he could foresee in what our world has become is this, that everything and everyone is vying for your attention, right? There are billions of dollars spent on a daily basis just to get your attention, just to draw your attention in. Your attention is the greatest resource that is being mined in this world. He writes this. He says, in an information-rich world, remind you, this is in the late 60s, the wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever is that information consumes. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. In other words, when you have bombarded yourself with stuff in your minds, in your schedules, every single moment of the day, we should not be surprised that it's difficult to give God our attention. It's why the great evil that we see is not some sort of spiritual, secular world out there. Most of the time, the thing that's standing in the way is the fact that we have overwhelmed our souls to the point of exhaustion. That we have consumed ourselves into oblivion and we have no energy left, have no attention span yet to simply slow down and be present to the God who is already present to us, right? Are you with me? He says, well, you better catch up. <laughs> he says, what you give your attention to is the person you become. Mary Oliver, she's a, one of our great poets. She says, attention is the beginning of a devotion. I love that statement. It reminds me of a story we looked at a few months back in the Gospels in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus' closest friends are hosting this meal for him and his disciples. And the problem is that these women, these two close friends of his, were responding to the presence of Jesus, we see, in two different ways. We're going to look at this again here. It says in Luke 10, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I want to hone in that phrase there, distracted by preparations. Martha wasn't pulled away from Jesus by some sort of deep-seated evil and disobedience in her heart. Martha was pulled away from Jesus because she was doing good and needed and necessary things. Guess what? When guests come over, you got to feed them. you got to make room for them. And that's what she's doing. Martha is doing the good things that is needed in these moments. She's not distracted by evil. She's distracted by good. When we hear the way that prepare the way of the world, of the Lord, it usually means something like this in our minds. Start getting busy. It reminds me of this bumper sticker I saw one time. I loved it. I'd love to have it one day. It says, Jesus is coming. Look busy. I probably wouldn't put it on my car, but it'd be nice just to have. 
I hate to say it, though, most of the time, in my experience, that's kind of what the message of the church has been. Jesus is here. You better get your crap together and start doing stuff, right? And so we come into these rooms like this and said, look how busy your lives are. Why don't you replace that with the Christian version of busyness? We'll call that mission. Ooh, hold up. So we go when we go when we go when we go when we go. And like Martha, that mission is almost always good and needed and necessary things. Things that have to be done. And what we learn along the way, often the hard way, I've learned this, is that it's far easier to be busy for God than just to simply be present with Him. Christmas, Advent is a reminder of that over and over and over again. It's so much easier, like Martha, to stay busy in the background of Jesus' ministry. We said this back in October when we looked at this passage, that activity is a convenient substitute for intimacy. It's way easier just to be active and be doing stuff for God to distract us from the fact that we don't know how to actually be with Him. It is easier to spiritualize our restlessness. And like Martha, when we get tired, we start pointing the finger at everyone else. Why aren't they doing it? Why aren't they working as hard as I am? Why aren't they doing church the way they're supposed to be doing it? Why are they giving themselves to these things? But Jesus' response to her and Jesus' response to us in these moments is not condemnation. It's, it's an invitation. Luke continues on. It says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary's chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Listen to those words again. One thing is needed. What is that one thing, friends? That one thing is presence with Jesus. What Martha gave Jesus was her activity, but Mary gave Jesus her attention. It is one thing to give Jesus the activities of your life. It is another thing to truly give Jesus your attention. I can't speak for you, but in what I sense for most of us, preparing the way of the Lord in this Advent season is, is less a matter of, of what we have to do and more a matter of what we need to be in order to slow down and just be present with God. A matter of what we have to press into to give God more than just our frantic activity, but really our deepest attention. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, he writes these words. He says, bearing fruit requires slowing down enough to give Jesus direct access to every aspect of our lives. Just because God has access to everything that is true about us does not mean God has access to us. Whew, hang on that. Loving union 
is an act of surrender, giving God complete access, and we cannot do that in a hurry. We must be humbly accessible with the door of our hearts continually open to Him. And Jesus doesn't force that on us. It's something that only we can do. Now, maybe this is a paradigm shift for you today, and I I hope it is. I hope maybe this is good news, a refreshing news, instead of coming in and hearing that you have to get your act together so God will show up in your life. Good news this morning, my friends. God is here. God is present and at work, both in your goodness and in your badness, both in your sin and all the ways that you are getting it right. God has come to save you and save me, not just from the bad things we have done, but from the good things that keep us from him. So maybe this morning we need to pray, God, I am carrying around a crowded heart. I am living with a cluttered mind. I have filled up my life and I have filled up my schedule so much that I have forgotten what it means to be still. God, I've seen you as desiring my activity, but I've failed to give you my attention. I've only known you as a God who called me to get my act together and not a God who just longs to simply be with me. But today, Lord, you have my attention. Today, Lord, you have my affection. Help me prepare the way for your coming, even knowing even knowing and believing, God, that you have already arrived. Jesus, shape that in us today. I pray against the, the, the words of condemnation from the enemy, words of accusation from the enemy that may come into words like this, messages like this, and say, oh, look how much you've messed up your life but that we would simply hear like Jesus spoke to Mary today that this one thing is good this invitation to Martha too that we can slow down we can be present to the God who is already present to us not from condemnation but from invitation we know that this is the God who is with us today and for us today the God who just longs simply be present to us. And Lord, we trust that you are this morning. So may we give you our whole hearts, our attention and our affection this morning. We love you and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every week during this time of response, after we look to the scriptures together, we take communion. We have these elements here on the table. There's another table in the back some in the lobby as well. We encourage you, week in and week out, to do this. This is just a visible, tangible reminder of reminding ourselves that God has reconciled us to himself. That God has met us in both our sin and in our goodness and has saved us and united us to him. But also, and this is good news too, when we share these elements together, we've been united with one another across so many different divides that God in these elements is uniting a family that is diverse and messy and beautiful, and that's what we call church. 
So I encourage you to take this this morning as Hannah sings and leads us in this time.